I'm Dr. Josefa Fogel-Rubel. This is a podcast episode brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Parshat Kitisa opens with the census tax, the Machatzita Shekel, and instructions for a few additional accoutrements of the Mishkan, the anointing oil, the bronze sink, the appointment of Betzalel as construction staff, and a final commandment regarding Shabbat, illustrating the foundational idea that the Torah creates holiness in space and time. The holiness of space must stop and respect the superior holiness of time. And then it all unravels. All of this theoretical planning for a holy space comes crashing down when the people violate basic principles of their covenant in Moshe's confusing absence while he ascends to heaven to receive the Luchot. We sense that this was all somewhat of an overshoot for this newly freed people, utterly too fast and perhaps too lofty. The episode is familiar. The calf's construction, God's anger, Moshe's successful plea that God keep them alive, Moshe's confrontation with Aaron and his anger at the people, which translates into a killing spree of the sinners. Moshe and God's relationship also undergoes transition. Moshe is singled out as having a unique relationship with God. Later in the Parsha, we learn that he begins to emanate a divine light that had to be mollified when he spoke with the people. It seems that as the people lose some of their covenantal status, Moshe actually gains even more. The last section of the Parsha focuses on repair, reestablishing the terms of their covenant by reiterating the prohibition of apostasy and commandment of the holidays, emphasizing correct worship of God. Before I introduce today's guest, I just wanted to remind all of our listeners that sponsoring a podcast is a wonderful way to mark any occasion. Write me at podcast at matan.org.il or check out the donation webpage on the Matan website or contact the office directly. Today's episode has been dedicated anonymously in memory of David Shmuel Ben Yitzchak. I'm honored to be joined today by one of the Tanakh professors who most influenced my study in college, Dr. Michelle Levine. Dr. Levine is a tenured associate professor of Bible at the Jewish Studies Department at Stern College and teaches a wide variety of biblical courses. She is also a faculty member of the GPATS graduate program in Tanakh track. Dr. Levine is the author of a book on the commentary of Nachmanides, the Ramban, and his literary approach to biblical characterization titled Nachmanides on Genesis, the Art of Biblical Portraiture, and many articles on various Tanakh and Ramban related topics. She is currently working on a book on Ramban's commentary on the wilderness narratives in Shemot and Bamidbar. Today's episode, in light of our theme, will be focusing on the personality of Aharon through the prism of the Ramban's interpretation. Dr. Michelle Levine, it is an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here and to reacquaint with you. So I guess to jump into our topic for today, I'd love if you just paint sort of a brief portrait of who the Ramban is. So many of us maybe are familiar with him, but we're not always as familiar with his really unique background and sort of his contribution to our Jewish tradition. The Ramban is uh, a foremost 13th century Spanish commentator. His dates are 1194 to 1270 and he was a prominent native of Girona, Catalonia which is a was a part of Christian Spain at the time. He earned his living as a physician but he was also an eminent scholar, a halachic authority and a spiritual leader in his community. He was a relative of Rabbeinu Yona Gerondi and he was a disciple of uh, a number of scholars, both from Provence as well as northern France. 
and these particular scholars taught him the Ashkenazic way of thinking, especially fostering his understanding of Midrashic exegesis, and he also was very much a student of the Spanish Pshat methodology as well. And I think the best way to sum up his methodology, where he is very much at a crossroads in which he combines a number of different methodological schools of thought is to quote from uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Ephraim Kannerfogel, who wrote uh, a number of years ago the following about the Ramban, that the Ramban integrated an unusually wide array of disciplines, methodologies, and concerns in a seamless fashion. One almost gets the sense that Ramban, in preparation for his task, sought to be able to understand Kabbalah with the greatest of the Kabbalists, to uncover Pshutel Shalmikra with the best of the Pashtanim, to ponder philosophical questions with the most prominent Jewish thinkers, in addition to developing a dazzling mastery of Talmudic literature. Ramban could speak the language of each discipline separately, but he managed to blend them as well. And from my perspective, Ramban's integrative approach to understanding biblical text and his ability to read a biblical text broadly is one of the major contributions that he brings to the table as a biblical commentator. Um, Ramban also was pivotal in mediating the controversy on, over the philosophical writings of the Rambam, Maimonides, which began in 1232 in northern France. And toward the end of his life in 1267, he emigrated to the land of Israel. He was compelled to do so because of the ensuing acrimony from his prevailing defense of Judaism in the 1263 Barcelona Disputation. And when he arrived in Jerusalem and he witnessed the devastation of Jerusalem from the Turks, he helped resuscitate the Jewish community there, but he later settled in Akko, and he became its spiritual leader until the end of his life in 1270. And the most recent opinion of scholars is that Ramban composed and he completed his commentaries on Hamisha Chumshei Torah while he was living in Spain. But nevertheless, what's also very interesting about the history of Parshanut regarding the Ramban is that when he arrived in Israel, he supplemented many of his interpretations with important, impactful addenda that he integrated into his original commentary. And there is a work from uh, 2013 by Yosef Ofer and Yehonatan Jacobs on these very Torah commentary addenda of the Ramban. Yeah, actually, those are two more professors that taught me in my master's and doctoral studies in Bar-Ilan. And I'll just say for our listeners who I know are now cluing into the Ella Torah website after we spoke with, uh, with Ni'ima Novetsky, that when you look at the Ramban, on the Alatora website, the parts that there are the addendums from when he moved to Eretz Yisrael are put in brackets. So just so that you understand those little bits there, so you can look at the version that's come out from Professor Ofer and and uh, and Jacobs, but also on the Alatora website and others, I'm sure on Safari as well, they have incorporated those additions. So it's not something you'll necessarily find in like your really sort of older printed Mikrot Kedolot but in more of the modern critical commentaries, they'll have it. And I think it's also just this amazing example, first of all, of somebody who's always trying to grow. I mean, the Ramban, as you said, was like literally the most unbelievable Renaissance commentator, just someone who's holding 
in so many worlds. And that's so difficult to do. I mean, it just takes like such a virtuoso that's kind of incomprehensible to be able to be so well-versed in so many worlds, but also a humility that when you come to Eretz Yisrael and you realize, oh, I got those pieces wrong, right? It's something that I think today when people are willing to to correct themselves, we feel relieved that there's still people out there like that. So the Ramban is a great classical example of someone who was able to to amend and shift when they realized that they had gotten things a little bit off because of geographical barriers. So yeah, that's such it's always such a moving piece about his background. And he also discovered additional commentaries when he was in the land of Israel, such as that of Rabbeinu Hanan El. And he mm. incorporated uh, the insights of Rabbeinu Hanan El into his commentary as well, famously in his commentary on the Main Mariva in Bemidbar chapter 20. So why don't we jump into our Parsha? And and you, you, you bring us in there wherever it feels right for you in sort of the, the somewhat of a mess that we have going on <laughs> in Parshat Kitisa uh, and the really complicated relationship that we have going on between what's happening between Aaron and the people and then when Moshe reappears. Uh, there's, I think, multiple ways to interpret this episode. Well, first of all, I think we need to take into consideration that Ramban is a progressive reader of biblical text, and particularly in the context of the parashiot of Sefer Shmot, this is very important. Ramban reads chronologically that Cheta Egel takes place after the command of the Mishkan. That is, the parashiot are in order, Trumat and then Kitisa. This is very distinct from the opinion of Rashi based on uh, based on Midrashic sources, not that Ramban does not have support from other Midrashic sources, uh, that from the perspective of Rashi, the Mishkan is a B'diavad, it is a reaction to Cheta Egel and not a But Ramban maintains that the Mishkan is a that Hashem intended a continual manifest presence to accompany them in the Midbar through the medium of the Mishkan. And taking that into consideration, when Parashaki Tisa interrupts the flow of the command for the building of the Mishkan from Turman Tetzaveh, and then only later on it picks up that thread in the end of Sefer Shmot and Vayakel Pekudei, this particular, um, you know, interference is quite blatant and obviously needs to be taken into consideration how we are going to shift our understanding of the relationship between uh, Hashem and Bnei Yisrael as a consequence of this very grievous and tragic episode. But I want to take us back a little bit before we start talking about Aharon and his role in Cheta Egel. I want to go back to Shmot Perek Chavdalet. Because in that particular context, right after Matan Torah, Moshe is being commanded to enter into the cloud, right, deeper into the midst of the Arafel, where Hashem is manifestly present. He is going to learn a number of of laws. He's going to receive the first Luchot. And what's very interesting is, is Moshe gets a sense that he's going to be gone for a while. He doesn't know how long but he does get a sense that he's going to be gone for a while. And therefore, he tells the elders and Aharon and Chul, he says, that this is in Shmot Chavdalad Yudalad. He says to them, if there are problems, right, judiciary issues, 
I am setting up like a temporary cabinet, a temporary judicial administration that you should settle all disputes. And Ramban interestingly says that what Moshe is asking them to serve in is in the capacity, Ramban says, Bim komi, in my place, be like me and set up a Moshev Beidin in place of me. So what's interesting is that along with the 70 elders, except Yehoshua, who Ramban considers one of the 70 elders, you have Aaron and Chur. This is very important to me because Moshe Rabbeinu is especially singling out Aaron to assist in this matter of leadership when there is going to be a vacuum of leadership during the time of Moshe Rabbeinu's absence. And he's trying to set up a temporary legal system to avoid chaos and anarchy. And in light of that, I think it definitely sharpens our understanding of how Ramban understands the demands of the people to Aaron in Shemot Lamidbet in Parashat Kitisa. Because what the people are requiring, according to Ramban, is not idolatry. Ramban very clearly says that what they want is another Moshe Rabbeinu. They want a Moshe Acher. They want another Moshe. They want a Madrich. They want a guide because of the fact that until now, Moshe is the one who has been guiding them on the way through the vast and challenging wilderness. And therefore, they feel that they need another guide if Moshe is not going to be present among them. What is really interesting is, is how Ramban reads the request, that the demand that they have of Aaron. They say, Kum lanu Elohim, ki Moshe ha'ish, lo yadanu mehayalo. And very interestingly, Ramban understands that to mean that what they are requesting is an ish Elohim. They want another man of God. They want another intermediary and mediator between them and Hashem to guide them along the way. What's so clear, according to this interpretation of the Ramban, is that Aharon, nobody thought that Aharon would be a substitute for Moshe. Meaning, in the dichotomy between Aharon and Moshe, it is clear that Aharon is second in command and can never replace. Meaning, if you're looking at it the way the Ramban is explaining it, you might think, well, maybe the people should come to Aharon and say, why don't you be our leader now that Moshe isn't here? But it seems to be so clear to everybody that I'll give, I'll say this now, but obviously I mean it in air quotes, you know, Aaron is the soft one. He's the one that they can come to because he's not going to have, you know, if you look at a parent dynamic, which obviously they're, they're siblings, but if I look at it like a parent, you know, the, the children, when they're sort of losing themselves, there is a parent that they'll appeal to more, more, uh, sort of they'll appeal to them because they think that they may have uh, someone there to speak to. Um, but in that regard, the children also don't, if they don't really want to be left to their own devices. And they also ultimately, even though the strict parent can be somewhat annoying, they, they like that structure. And so I find it very interesting that according to this, where the Ramban is so clear in the fact that they're asking for a leader, and this isn't that they've sort of lost their way in terms of their belief in God, it just, it's very striking that they never, they never look to our own as even some sort of relevant second, second choice. Well, two comments about that. Thank you. That's very insightful. First of all, it's interesting that in Ramban's writings, in one of his sermons called Torah Hashem Tmimah, 
when the Ramban comments on this very episode, he actually cites a pasuk that had been mentioned earlier in Perik Zion when Hashem had to redistribute the uh, the roles of Aharon and Moshe in terms of their speaking before Paro and Bnei Israel. That Hashem had said to Moshe, Elohim and in that particular context, Elohim is not being understood as a god, right? But as being mm-hmm. understood as as an intercessor, meaning that uh, that Moshe Rabbeinu, according to Ramban, is actually going to hear the words directly from Hashem. He is going to transmit it to Aaron, just like Hashem commands a prophet. And that's how Aaron is going to be able to know what to speak uh, before Paro. So, you are that is very important that here Elohim is a leader, right, with directives, a messenger, and that's exactly what B'nai Israel are asking. But what I want to point out as we as we progress in talking about the persona of Aaron is that actually Moshe Rabbeinu, we are going to see, and if you want me to jump ahead, I will, but Moshe Rabbeinu is actually going to see Aharon very differently than the way that perhaps B'nai Israel are thinking of Aharon's status and stature in relationship to Moshe as you described it. Um, I would I, I would say, and uh, you know, I don't have, uh, my sense of the Ramban is actually that perhaps they are uh, approaching Aharon. They're not approaching the elders. They're not approaching Chul, right? They're approaching Aharon. Now, why are they approaching Aaron? Because Dafka, he is considered to be right below Moshe Rabbeinu. And yes, um, Aaron for sure, out of his humility, would certainly never see himself as a replacement of Moshe. And I think he went out of his way not to become a substitute Moshe because he was afraid what would happen when Moshe comes back. On the other hand, the people are approaching Aaron because they do see in him a figure of authority. They do see in him uh, leadership capabilities to the point that when they are in crisis, usually they always turn to Moshe, right? Moshe is always uh, lamenting that they don't directly daven to Hashem. They complain and they grumble to whom? They grumble to Moshe, but sometimes to Moshe and Aaron together. And so therefore, when they're in crisis, who is the natural persona that they're going to turn to? They're going to turn to Aaron. And actually, Ramban builds his whole commentary on this very complex, extensive episode uh, against the backdrop of the issue of leadership in a leadership vacuum. And what he is going to, what he presents is that actually Moshe is disappointed in Aaron that Aharon, even if he didn't want to be a substitute Moshe, that Aharon did not take the reins of leadership authoritatively enough, forcefully enough to stem the tide and to avoid the cataclysmic events that did take place. From Ramban's perspective, we need to focus on why Aharon made an Egel. And according mm-hmm. to Ramban, Aharon deliberately made this golden calf. This wasn't something that just happened to pop out when he put all the molten gold into the fire. Um, now, Ramban does use a number of Kabbalistic uh, underpinnings, which, uh, which I'm not going to go into. 
But um, just very simply, the calf, which is understood as a shul, also an ox, uh, represents uh, the divine attribute of, of midat adin, of justice. And this is, this is understood by Aaron, at least, as a, a midah that has been uh, an attribute, uh, a divine attribute that is predominating in a wilderness setting. And therefore, um, using Kabbalistic underpinnings and based on Yechezkel's chariot vision, um, the golden calf was supposed to be symbolical of this Midat Adin. And what Aharon wanted is that Bnei Israel should channel their understanding that, they're, that they have to uh, direct their thoughts to, and kavanah to Hashem, but in the presence of the golden calf, it would be to invoke and draw down this divine attribute, which would then continue to uh, actively uh, direct them and guide them in their, in their uh, wilderness wanderings. Um, Ramban very emphatically uh, says that when the Egel is, uh, is made, uh, Ramban says very emphatically that when they declare uh, that this is Ela Elohecha Yisrael, he uh, emphasizes that Bnei Yisrael are, he says, Ain Right? He says they're not fools. They don't think this new golden calf is, is what took them out of Egypt. But nevertheless, um, this concrete image, and this is the problem here. Uh, Aharon had the right kavanah. He was trying to use this golden calf as a symbolical conduit. Uh, to draw down uh, the Midata Din, various divine attributes that are going to enable them to continue to be successful in uh, their wilderness uh, survival, because despite the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu is absent. But with this concrete image, what happens is, is it backfires. And already they're inclining to worship the calf um, in and of itself. And this is not something that Aaron anticipated. Uh, so you want to say that perhaps Aharon was naive uh, about the psyche of the people and the pulse of the people at the time. Um, he took them literally. They just want a new Moshe. He did not think that they were going to backslide so easily into Avodah Zarah, which they do. Um, it's interesting that as a result, he tries to stem the tide by calling a holiday, right? Chag Lashem. And he says machar because he's hoping Moshe Rabbeinu will show up in between and this whole, this whole problem will dis dissipate. Um, it's very interesting on that particular uh, context that the Sfulno actually, uh, that the Sfulno actually mentions that Moshe Rabbeinu was upset that, that Aaron called a holiday, a festival, because already making a holiday and a festival and building an altar, that's just going to feed into right, the, uh, the, the, uh, the underlying uh, inclinations of the people to backslide to their idolatrous ways. Um, and let's not, let's not uh, make light of that because of the fact that it's very clear in a number of texts in Tanakh, especially in Yechezkel, that Bnei Israel were unfortunately uh, worshippers of idolatry when they were in Egypt. And, um, and we do have to pay attention, as you said in your introduction, that 
transforming into a people that's going to worship only one God, an invisible uh, a God, uh, is 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 a is a major is a major transformation for the people. We have to appreciate very much what they did at Har Sinai at Matan Torah, that they accepted it wholeheartedly. But unfortunately, we do see the uh, the you know the inclination to backslide into idolatry, even though Aharon did not mean that at all. Uh, when this Egel uh, is now in front of them. Right. But what's interesting is that, I mean, they're kind of playing with fire and then he's sort of surprised that things are burning. Meaning calf worship is a really, really ancient Near Eastern, like really, really well. I mean, Rambante is taking it in a Kabbalistic light of Midot, but calf worship to anybody familiar with ancient Near East, it's one of the oldest worships also yes. in ancient Egypt. So like meaning you're kind of like, well, if you're calling it a calf and you're right, it's a calf. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's something, I, I really think that what the Ramban says there that you mentioned in a, in a sentence about trying to delay the whole thing. No, when Aaron that wants to delay it. Sorry, that Aaron wants to delay it. I really think that that sits at the crux of this whole thing, meaning uh, I think it's it was in uh, Leon Cass's commentary on Shemot that he sort of presents Aaron as as thinking that he was presenting all these requests to the people, assuming that the whole project would never go through. Okay. Meaning he says, well, give me all your jewelry. And he expected who's going to give me all their jewelry. And then they just threw all their jewelry at him. Meaning he sort of presents Aaron as this, as this obviously important, holy man who didn't expect that anything he was going to say was going to be listened to. And then the people were so, you know, impassioned to, to get going or to take all this religious fervor that had had a place a moment ago on Harsinai. And they're trying to figure out what to do with it and and everyone just goes along with his plan so i think that that's i think that portrait of him well i I don't know i don't think it's minimizing i think it's very very humanistic of you know and then as you said in the ramban it's really its roots is in the ramban not that he had read the ramban of this i'm just trying to delay the process and so i'm giving them the things that they're familiar with i'm sort of making them feel as if we're getting closer but you know we'll call it a hug and hopefully moshe will just come in and 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 what he says earlier in a comment that you referenced from a different part of it is that he said it was clear to him, Aaron, that the second Moshe would reappear, they would throw this whole calf thing away, meaning they didn't envision that this would ever be like this distraction would ever be something that would actually continue worshiping. And by the and way, so, they did. They did. And this is yeah. one of the proofs for the Ramban from that the Ramban brings that they at least initially uh, could not have intended this to be an idol because of the fact the minute that Moshe Rabbeinu appears and he destroys and pulverizes that that golden image, nobody rises up against him. Nobody rebels. Yeah. Nobody stops in him. If you are very committed to your God, there is no way you are going to let someone do what Moshe Rabbeinu did, and they're completely silent. So, um, and and you yeah. know that's the that's the whole point here. Um, that you know, um, yes, Aaron was hoping to do a stopgap. And um, and we need to also take into consideration that there's an interesting, um, an interesting uh, inconsistency or dichotomy between the fact that when Hashem is talking to Moshe and Moshe is still on the mountain with Hashem and doesn't know what's going on until he gets down the mountain, Hashem says, I want to destroy everyone. And yet in the end, there are, at least initially, the Levim only kill out a few thousand. Yes, there's a plague afterwards, uh, which we don't know how many are are killed afterwards by Hashem, but um, and Ramban grapples with that, and he says it has to be that everybody was in on it because there would be no way that Hashem would say, "Let me destroy everyone and start again with you." Um, on the other hand, 
uh, the fact that uh, in actuality there are very few uh, relatively uh, in a big nation that are that are killed uh, and for this particular sin we have to try to figure out how it is that Hashem wanted to kill everyone and so few in the end are and so Ramban actually uh, makes an interesting contrastive pair between thought and action um, everybody was thinking evil things and uh, perhaps we could add on well everyone seems to have been very gung-ho uh, on gathering together all the gold the question is did everyone actually contribute the gold but it seems like there was a lot of fervor as you said and enthusiasm among the people but um, uh, there are those but who actually you know bowed down and 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 made the golden calf into you know sacrificed actually to the golden calf as Hashem says uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu um, it seems that there weren't that many and there is a lot of ambiguity in the text and Ramban grapples with the fact that perhaps there are some who did follow uh, Aaron's lead and that they were doing a Chag Lashem uh, but there were enough of them that were doing the opposite right that it says that a lot of them were sitting down to eat and to drink and it's interesting that Ramban in this context adds in a lot of nuances that they're eating uh, to satiation they're drinking to drunkenness uh, they're making a real festival out of it and they're right they're having they're they're reveling uh, and rowdily around and cavorting uh, around this calf so there is a lot of that negative uh, reprehensible behavior um, on the other hand, we need to we need to take into consideration that apparently a majority of them uh, did not implement these these you know evil thoughts and inclinations uh, in actuality. Um, nevertheless, as we said, uh, Ramban holds Aharon responsible, and if we want to transition to that, yeah, I think also I'll just throw in one piece there about let's say the Leviim. I can't remember anymore where I was reading it. I don't think it was in the Ramban. But this idea, you know, the Levi'im weren't necessarily on Moshe's side because they were guilt-free, meaning it's very possible that they were all participating to a certain degree. But the question was, is where where were people's loyalties in the time that it came to sort of come to terms with what had been done? The Levi'im wanted to be on Moshe's side, perhaps also strategically, and also obviously because the Levi'im have a very rich relationship with violence, right? They are great at doing that and using their violence for uh, for sort of more more somewhat sacred purposes. But I, I would like to talk a little bit about the conversation between Moshe and Aharon afterward. And I'll just sort of put in our backdrop that, you know, Moshe and Aharon as brothers are a really, really important pair because they're our first set of brothers after the book of Breshi, where that's such a central theme, who really have a, a wonderful relationship with each, with each other. And the Midrash points that out. There's a great Midrash in Shir Shir and Rabbah that points out about that relationship. And and so in these few moments where, and, and it's complicated, right? Because Aaron also has been replaced by Moshe as the main, you know, in the hierarchy, even though he's the older brother. And even though he has skills that Moshe doesn't, they have this like beautiful sort of symbiotic relationship. And so in these moments where they really um, have tension, there aren't so many of them, but there are few I, it just it constantly it also reinvokes the whole brasheet situation right are these brothers going to sort of come and rival are they going to be able to figure themselves out and again ultimately they're an unbelievable paradigm of brotherhood meaning they can disagree and they can uh but they you know they do have a hierarchy that's sort of in between that that's 
place uh, in their relationship, but they're able to navigate it with some healthy tension that, that all sibling relationships have. Yes, there's going to be a lot of tension right now between Moshe and Aaron, but we also need to take into account that Moshe Rabbeinu makes sure that Aaron recaptures some of his self-respect and self-dignity because he is going to be the Kohen Gadol. And, uh, and his children are going to be continuing the line of Kohanim, and it's very important uh, to have that proper mindset. So it's very interesting that exceptionally among his predecessors, Ramban exposes Moshe's chastising tone when he approaches Aaron, and he says, Aaron, you are acting out of character. You were supposed to be a mochiach, a mechaper, someone who rebukes, someone who helps the people atone. You should have had mercy and compassion over them. You should have taken the pulse of the people in this moment of their desperate need to fill the void of my absence. But you failed to rise to the occasion as a leader so much so that Ramban interpolates that Moshe is alleging rhetorically that Aaron has assumed the contrary role of being their enemy. Who was seeking to cause their downfall. Um, this is quite harsh rhetoric, uh, according to the way Ramban is understanding the way, the way Moshe is chastising Aaron. Now, Aaron defends himself, and yet Moshe Rabbeinu is not convinced. Despite Aaron's defense, and, and he says, I didn't know, you know, they presented themselves one way, but they were thinking about, they, right? they were hypocrites, they act one way, but really they're thinking another. According to Ramban, Moshe is not convinced. And later on, Moshe says, the text tells us, Vayar Moshe ta'am, ki paruahu. And the way Ramban understands this particular context is that he says very, uh, very poignantly that Moshe saw that the people are lacking direction. According to the way Ramban reads this, Moshe saw, what does it mean, Kifra'o Aharon, that they're parua, that there's complete anarchy. Batel mehem kol umusal. He says, very importantly, that Aharon did not fill the vacuum of leadership. This is a people who are lacking direction. Why? Because it is Aharon who caused them to be devoid of, of of this guidance and this discipline, that they have no guidance and they're rudderless. And Ramban maintains when it says that this is just going to give fodder to the enemies, that it diminishes our reputation in the eyes and our status in the eyes of the enemies. So so to me, it is really very interesting that Moshe maintains uh, that Aaron did not step up to, to his leadership shoes, that he did not fill the proper leadership capacity, and just the opposite, that unfortunately, he, he ended up, you know, leading them in the wrong direction. And even if it was naively, when he saw what was happening, he, Moshe is saying you should have stepped in even more forcefully. And how do we know this? Because in Dvarim and Perektet, we learn very clearly that Moshe Rabbeinu says, Moshe, when he is in his final farewell address, he's very emphatic that Hashem was angry at Aaron. The language is so strong. 
And therefore, Moshe also had to daven on behalf of Aaron. Now, by the way, this is not mentioned in Sefer Shemot, again, because Moshe had respect for Aaron. And he didn't want to stigmatize Aaron in front of the people. And therefore, he doesn't say it explicitly. We don't know that he davened for Aaron. And how angry Hashem was at Aaron. We only learn it later on after Aaron has died. So I want to conclude with a very interesting Midrash because of the fact that Aaron himself, as much as he's reinstated into, into um, his role as a Kohen Gadol, and Hashem forgives Aharon completely, and Ramban is very emphatic, Aharon is completely forgiven for his role in the Golden Calf debacle. He rein, he's reinstated as the Kohen Gadol. His children are going to fill this capacity after him. And yet, Ramban pays attention using, um, using a Midrashic exposition that Aharon the sin of the golden calf still remains very, it weighs down on him. It weighs down on him tremendously. And in fact, we see that uh, Ramban, uh, Ramban maintains, and this is in his, actually in his commentary on, uh, on Sefer Vayikra in Periktet, uh, in mm-hmm. Pasuk Zayin. Yeah, I wanted to jump there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Ramban says very interestingly that uh, when Aharon is supposed to start doing his own sacrifices during the ceremony of the Miluim, that Moshe Rabbeinu has to encourage him. Right, Kravatan Hamizbeach. He says to him, "Go, go. Do what? What are you? What are you procrastinating? Why are you waiting?" And and according to one perspective, it's because Aharon is humble, right? They, they both have the traits of humility. But according to another Midrashic's perspective, which, uh, which Ramban quotes, uh, the Midrash says that Aharon saw the altar as the likeness of an ox, and he was afraid of it. And Moshe said, don't be afraid. Go and do your, your role. Because, in, I mean, it, it's, it, the Midrash doesn't expand, but there are Mifarshim that say that he was looking at the corners of the Mizbeach, Keren, and that Aharon was seeing the horns, the Keren, of this Egel, this Shor, and he was upset. He it was weighing him down tremendously that, that, that he can't be the Kohen Gadol because he still feels the gravity of, of the sin. And Ramban actually quotes from Tehillim Nun Aleph, interestingly, right? Chatati, right? That, his, that one, one sin is always before you. And therefore, uh, Rabbeinu Bechaye ends up saying to us that um, Aram felt deeply that he that he did not that he ha- still hasn't lived up to the expectations that he could be the Kohen Gadol. And um, and, Ramba- and Rabbeinu Bechaye says that even though Aram might have had good intentions, and therefore Aram, according to this this midrash, is very hesitant to assume actively his role as the Kohen Gadol. And what does Moshe Rabbeinu do? Brother, we're talking about brothers, right? We're talking about encouragement and respect. Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, gather up your courage and go to the Mizbeach and assume your role because you are very much, you have been, Hashem has forgiven you and you need to assume your role at the helm, the role that you have as part of the leadership of Am Yisrael. So first of all, I 
I mean, that Midrash and the Ramban is, it's an unbelievably strong psychological uh, reading of Aharon in that moment, because there's a lot, of, there are many, as you said, many other readings offered, and that one is just so compelling, because you think, how could this not have left an impact on right. who Aharon was? It's literally, it's literally the mistake of your career. And so I think it's an unbelievably insightful Midrash. I, I guess a question that I would want to ask as sort of we wind down our conversation is when you read the Ramban on this episode, I'm curious what part of his interpretation do you feel is, is the, is the most, I don't know if I would say chidush or, or what do you feel is his contribution to this episode? I think what Ramban, uh, the fact that he, he uh, understands the catalyst to this sin as um, the people looking to our own to fill a leadership vacuum. Uh, to mm -hmm. fill uh, a, a gap in Moshe Rabbeinu's absence because they are, unfortunately, to an extreme, so dependent on Moshe Rabbeinu that they fall apart when he is absent for so long. And they didn't know it was only going to be uh, 40 days and, you know, 40 nights. Um, I think, you know, pa you know pre presenting uh, that at that angle of analysis at the very beginning of his interpretation to this whole, this whole narrative, and then coming back to it when Moshe Rabbeinu is chastising Aharon that you acted to them without filling proper leadership a proper leadership role I think this is Ramban's contribution Ramban as I said is a very broad uh, global reader and uh, what I find amazing about the Ramban is that when you read Ramban from beginning to end of a story um, you really see how there is a cohesiveness that mm -hmm. and linking threads that thematic threads that he ties together and he sees the whole story um in uh, you know as one large with one large overarching message thank you so much for being here today really appreciate it appreciate your sensitive reading both of the story and of the ramban's commentary thank you so much thank you for having me it's a pleasure Thanks for listening to this week's episode from Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. Please do us and all women's Torah learning a favor and share this episode with all of your friends and family.